This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Matthew Courtney, a specialist in evidence-based decision-making in school improvement settings. Today, Matthew shares his unique insights on the crucial role of knowledge brokering in helping educators apply research to solve deep-rooted problems. Matthew also discusses the importance of using local data, the essential steps for creating a sustainable system for evidence-based decision-making, and the secrets to empowering educators to foster a positive employee experience. Hey, good morning, Matthew. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on school improvement and the impact that evidence-based decision-making can have on the employee experience. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who should be paying attention today? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, this is my favorite topic. I could talk about it literally all day. Um, for, for the listeners, my name is Matthew Courtney, and I specialize in evidence-based decision-making in school improvement, and specifically in school improvement settings. How do we make better decisions? How do we make sure those decisions are really sticking? How do we monitor those and eventually start to create our own evidence of success? Um, I think really today, um, who should be listening and paying attention? All of our school leaders who are in charge of making those really hard curriculum decisions, those uh, program purchasing powers, um, really thinking about how do we make those decisions better, get more out of our dollars, and uh, have better impacts for our kids. Yeah, great. I want to start with your background for just a little bit. I know you began your career in music education. That's right. And then took the natural shift to leadership roles within nonprofit higher education and state government sectors. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what led you to the research world in general? And then how did you land on school improvement? Yeah, so um, I loved my time in the classroom. And but like like most teachers struggled with many different kinds of challenges. And um, really, for me, the biggest challenge in my first year of teaching was my pencil sharpener. Um, I was a music teacher, as you said, and at the elementary level. And so, you know, we all know that like big blue pencil sharpener, industrial pencil sharpener that everybody has. And um, it's so loud and it breaks down all the time. And having 30 new kids every 25 minutes all day long, like that pencil sharpener was just like I was hearing it in my sleep. It was making me miserable. And um, one day we went to a training, um, we had a school-wide training on writer's workshop. And part of that, there was a research article about um, how you could use ink pens in writer's workshop and kids would write more because they'd spend less time kind of fidgeting with their pencil, erasing, things like that. Mm. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could do that in my music classroom. And so I bought 100 cheap ink pens, threw all my not-on pencils away, and like literally it was the best day of my teaching career in that first year. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, (laughs) everything, the the pencil sharpener is not making noise, the kids are doing their work, we're learning, we're progressing, we're not losing time. You know, you've only got 25 minutes in a music classroom, you got to move. And I was like, okay, there's something to this. And so I started really thinking about what else is challenging me and what does the research say about those pesky problems in my classroom and could I solve those problems on my own? Um, And that's really where it started. Um, Went and did a master's degree, went and did a doctorate, a specialist degree, really focused on building those research skills in a meaningful way. And now I'm committed to helping other educators learn how to do that, how to solve your own problems by applying that research in real time. Mm -hmm. 
That's fantastic. And I, I've, I've never heard of the pen usage like that, but it makes tremendous sense. Mm. And of course we can all relate to the blue pencil sharpeners and the <laughs> grinding sound that is oh, the worst. I still, to this day, don't have a single pencil in my house. <laughs> <laughs> You've been traumatized for life. I am traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Matthew, how much different is school improvement now compared to maybe pre pandemic? Are, are we still trying to solve the same problems or do you think we've been ushered into a new set of challenges? Mm. Yeah, so school improvement is like just trying to put out a huge building fire. There's a million crises and emergencies and concerns and problems of practice. And and so really, um, from a sort of theoretical standpoint, school improvement hasn't changed. Um, it's all about how do we build capacity? How do we create systems so that things flow a little smoother? How do we create monitoring processes so that when we can see these little bumps in the road, we can go, we can catch them early when they're still little bumps before they become huge crevices. And um, all of that, you know, stays the same. And those lines of thinking still apply. The difference is there's just more problems. There's more fires to put out. There's more challenges. Society has changed. Kids have changed. And so um, our school improvement leaders are really having to work faster and harder than ever to get those systems in place, to maintain those systems and structures, to update them along the way. Um, So really, I think that there's sort of a more frenzied pace now than we've Mm. seen in the past. Is our expectations higher for schools now? Than, than maybe 10, 15 years ago? Or do you think mm. expectations are about the same? I think expectations are higher than they've ever been. And, and I think that's a good thing. I think during the pandemic, a lot of parents really got to see what's happening in school in a new way. And they became really involved. And, um, you know, we beg parents to be involved in their schools. We want parents to come to parent-teacher conferences to get to know their teachers, to come to those events. And they're doing that at a higher rate and they're really engaged. And I love to see that. Um, but with that comes a lot of pressure um, and some new pressures because those parents are asking really hard questions. Mm-hmm. They're demanding that educators can say, well, this is what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. And here's what it's going to do for your kid. Um, and I think that's a, a a positive shift, but definitely one that creates challenges. Yeah. So I know you work with schools from all over. What What's happening in the schools that you work with that make the administrators want to reach out for your help? Yeah. So um, usually when an administrator reaches out to me seeking support and evidence-based decision-making, they've got a problem that they haven't been able to solve on their own yet. Um, usually it's uh, an entrenched problem of practice. They've tried a couple of things. They've hired a vendor or two to help them try to solve the problem. And not just none of it's worked. And so they come to me to really learn how do we make these decisions better? How do I synthesize research evidence into new information that I can use to inform my school improvement decisions, um, try to solve this problem of practice. You know, our vendors are awesome partners a lot of the times, but they're also trying to sell you. They're trying to get your money. And so their product, of course, is always going to be the right solution for your school. Um, And so being able to step in in my role as sort of a knowledge broker, as a sort of third party with no skin in the game, like I don't care which program you pick. I want you to pick the best program. I can help you really read that literature, compare it to other programs, compare it to other strategies, and help you make the best informed decision and be able to explain and defend that decision to your community. Mm -hmm. So people aren't going to you for necessarily like, I need research support, but it's, I've tried as much as I can to solve this challenge. 
and they don't know what else to do, which is where that third party like you comes in. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, to leaders who are wanting to really research in their schools, um, by all means, look into research practice partnerships. Um, That's a great strategy where you can partner with universities and large research organizations to really study like your homegrown interventions and things like that. But for research, but for practitioners who are struggling to solve their problems and apply research, that's really where knowledge brokering comes in and being able to help you navigate that. There's a lot of barriers to research use. Um, Time is a huge barrier. Um, So some leaders come to me and they're like, look, I can do this. I have these skills, but I just don't have enough hours in the day. I need someone else's brain to do this work for me. Or um, sometimes it's access. We can't access these things because our school, maybe we have a you know, we're in a rural setting, we have a lower budget, we have fewer resources, and we don't have access to research behind those expensive paywalls. And so Mm -hmm. can you help us overcome those barriers? So that's really, um, it's a little bit of a different role. um, But I think a really important one, because I think it's so empowering to those leaders, when they have that research in their hands, and they can speak to it and talk to that decision in a deep, professional way. Yeah, and so often the administrator is kind of on an island. They're isolated from, you know, there's there's not a like peer within mm. their building. Yeah. There might be different buildings. Every building is going to have different challenges and success stories, obviously. I'm curious, Matthew, how often do people come to you and say, I have identified the problem and I don't have a solution for it versus I know this is an area that we're challenged with, but I don't know what the root cause is. How and, and maybe the people that do come to you, sorry for the multi-layered question here, but people that come to you with, here's my challenge, how often is the challenge actually that versus is it maybe something else? Yeah, so all of my work always starts with deep root cause analysis. We really want to take a look and understand like what's really going on with this problem. We always know what our problem is, but until we can identify the cause to that problem, we can't really identify the right solutions. And so we spend a lot of time in that. Um, One of the things I talk a lot about with leaders is how do we use your local data to really examine and understand the context of that problem? So I can throw research at a problem all day, but if I don't have that local context, that research isn't really helping me. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to start now. So we've, we've kind of laid a bit of a foundation with, you know, what are some of the challenges kind of in general, what's Mm -hmm. it look like? I want to go to the other end of the spectrum now Mm -hmm. and say, here's what success looks like. So from your experience, after you work with a school and maybe you check in, you know, six months after a year after, what does success look like Mm -hmm. in a school that's implemented evidence-based decision-making that's worked with you And then how do you get them there? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it varies from from building to building and professional to professional and, um, you know, depending on how I'm engaging with them, right? So one of my favorite things to do is really to engage deeply with individual teachers um, and, and work with them on things like action research where they're designing their own solutions and testing those in their own um, in their own setting and solving their problems in real time. Um, when I work with, with leaders, we do a lot of the same kinds of things just on a bigger scale. And you can always tell um, when a leader or an educator has really bought into that because they keep doing it on their own. My goal as a consultant is always to work myself out of the job. I don't want you to have mm-hmm. to call me again because you have been empowered. You have 
acquired the skills and the access and the training and the knowledge and, and the support that you needed. So now you can go, oh, here's a new problem. I know what to do. I'm going to use my data. I'm going to understand the problem. I'm going to pull the research in to try to find solutions. I'm going to test it. I'm going to implement. I'm going to collect data. I'm going to enter a continuous improvement cycle. And we're going to follow this cycle over and over and over again. Um, so it's always fun for me when I check in with people. You know, as a consultant, you check in and you're like, hey, it's been a while. How's things going? Need anything else? I got bills to pay. Uh, and my <laughs> favorite thing, I love to have repeat clients. My favorite thing is when they say, we don't need you. We got this. Because mm. uh, that to me is really profession building. We're really lifting the field up in this evidence-based space. And uh, that's what I love to see. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. The, the number of decisions that educators make daily is just, it's staggering. Absurd. Right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting. So I'm in the business world mostly now and in the business world, you can control your controllables much more so than an education. You know, students are unpredictable, mm-hmm. uh, wild levels of variance in any given day, mm-hmm. any given hour, multiply that by, you know, sometimes 50 students in a building up to 3000 students in a building. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the administrator is responsible for the academic performance, responsible for the culture, the safety, uh, the physical space, parent, family communications, the, mm-hmm. the breadth of responsibility truly is unique for school leaders. Yeah. And with that breadth comes a lot of information that not everybody has. Mm. So teachers don't see everything. The cafeteria staff isn't involved in all the decision-making processes. Uh, it coaches, like everybody within a building has their own role, but the principal oversees all of that. Mm. All of that to say, with that information, certain decisions are made that not everybody understands. There's mm. not an understanding of the why behind it. It's not possible to explain every possible decision. Mm-hmm. So it's not reasonable to get collective input for all choices made as well. Mm-hmm. From an employee experience perspective, then this could leave staff asking questions like, why? Why are we doing this? How was this decision made? Is there a way for administrators to effectively communicate the why behind decisions when they have so much perspective and so many decisions that are made on a daily basis? Mm, Yeah. So from an evidence-based lens, the more transparent we can be about the evidence that we're using, the better. One of the rules that I have when I work with folks, um, I call it the research says rule. And um, I'll put a little bell on the table. Sometimes we pass it around. And anytime someone says research says, we ring the bell and we stop and we say, well, whose research says that? In what context did that research say that? And we hold ourselves accountable to being as specific and transparent as possible. And I think, you know, a lot of um, leaders, they get in in a hurry. Like you said, there's a million things. And they go to those faculty meetings and they say, we're going to do this strategy because research says that it works. Mm. Well, does it? Does it? I'm not sure. And, you know, we have to remember that teachers are highly trained, highly skilled professionals and with master's degrees and doctorates and specialty credentials for their content areas, et cetera, et cetera. These people know how to kind of sniff out what's true and what's false. And if you're just trying to kind of gaslight them and say, well, the research says this is what what we should do, so we're going to do it. They know that. They know that that's phony. So, um, you know, there's lots of ways to be transparent with research. I love my research says rule. I think it's always kind of fun because the bell rings and like the fifth time in a faculty meeting, everybody's like, oh, gosh. But um, it really, you know, it's a good kind of joke and light heart. It lightens up the room a little bit, right? But also things like, um, you know, 
making research available to your teachers, making sure that everybody has access to the things that you're looking at. So as you download articles, maybe they go in a Google Drive and that Google Drive is part of your, you know, everybody's got access to it. So we can say, we're buying this curriculum. Here's the 25 articles that that we consulted along the way. And they're available to you. So for people who want and need that deeper dive before they can buy in and start implementing, um, they have the ability to do that. The other thing I tell leaders to do is consider creating a research use committee. Research use and evidence-based decision-making is not the principal's job. Um, It's one part of their job, right? And so they've got a million other things to do. Let other people help you do that. Get Get a group of people together in a room on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, whatever the flow needs to be in your building to consider research for problem solving. Include your teachers, include your paraprofessionals, your counselors, all of these other folks in the building, bring them to the table and think about the skills that you've got. You know, maybe you're not the best statistician, but man, you've got an AP stats teacher who is just killing it every day. Invite that person to come help you interpret the stats and the research. We have so many resources. and I think we forget that those resources are there in our professionals. Mm-hmm. So how I'm, I'm trying to think through now just how how busy teachers are, again, how busy mm-hmm. administrators are. And of course, being research-based, I mean, you you want to ground your practice in research as much as possible. Mm. But the other side of the coin is, well, how much time does that take? And do I, like, yeah. can I get buy-in from my staff? You know, mm-hmm. if there is this research committee, research use committee, and I've got staff members in charge of that, how likely or unlikely is it for an administrator that wants to roll out research-based decision-making like this to actually implement it with some amount of fidelity versus mm-hmm. maybe how much pushback is there in a typical building? Yeah. So, I mean, that that's really a culture question, right? And every building has their own culture, their own vibe, their own participation threshold. Um, so, but, but we've had a lot of success with this in schools that I've worked with. Um, so a, key, a few key elements. First, this is why I root everything in continuous improvement processes, because we're going to build a system and a process where this can work and where this can thrive. And when we, I always say about processes and systems, they take a lot of time up front so that you save a lot of time later. Mm. And so, um, you know, we think about professional learning communities, right? The best PLCs have routines and they spend a lot of time learning those routines, but then a year in, they're like cranking it out and they're getting their work done and they're having really meaningful professional discussions because of that routine. So the same kind of thing. It takes a little time to build. We have to do some upskilling, some training. We have to figure out how do we get everybody access. We have to overcome those barriers up front. But if we can really build a system that that works and that functions, um, then it can become sustaining. It's also incredibly empowering. And so those teachers want to be part of that decision-making process. And um, being able to invite them to the table can really empower them. Now, the trick is you have to listen to your research use committee. And so if you design a committee and they're doing all this awesome work and they're cranking out these reports and synthesis for you, and then you go and do something totally opposite, that's a culture (laughs) killer. And really that's on you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So I'm curious, can you, we've kind of danced around what evidence-based decision-making is. Can Mm. you define it for us? And then maybe what are some of those those critical components? So as you're building out the system, what do you want to make sure that you include during that system? Yeah. So definition of evidence-based decision-making is is a hot topic. Um, (laughs) Google it and you'll find so much debate. Um, So here's what it is for me and in the work that I do. Um, through my lens, we are using the knowledge that we have to inform the decisions that we have to make. 
So it's really, uh, the definition is really as basic as that. So what is our knowledge? We have practitioner knowledge, and that's important. We bring that to the table. We have research knowledge. That to me is the missing component most of the time. Mm. That's the one I talk about the most, but it's just one component. Research knowledge without practitioner knowledge, without local context, isn't really very meaningful. Um, We can think about um, community feedback knowledge. Um, and, and local knowledge and tradition knowledge, all of that's important. We're feeding all of that together and trying to synthesize that to make the best decision that we can. And then it becomes an evidence producing activity. So once we've made this decision, we implement and we're actively built using systems and structures to collect data, to build evidence, to say, hey, our decision worked or it didn't work. And then that is new information, new knowledge that informs, do we keep doing this? Do we expand this? Is it time to put this away? We also have to have a willingness to stop doing things that we spend a lot of time and money on when they aren't working. And that's a huge problem in education. Um, But if we, you know, design a strategy and it's not working, we have to abandon that and move on as soon as we know it's not working. It's, in my view, malpractice to keep doing something that we know isn't working just because we spend a lot of time and money on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always that question of why are we doing this? And if the answer is it's always been done that way, it's probably time to rethink whatever that activity or system or process is. And it happens Mm -hmm. all the time everywhere. Everywhere. And in every industry, it's not an education specific phenomena. Yep. That's exactly right. So I'm curious then with, with evidence-based decision-making, I'm guessing oftentimes it comes back to student results, student outcomes. Is that right? Is that typically the genesis of evidence-based decision-making? Well, usually, yes. We want to see, obviously, positive student outcomes and changes those outcomes. But I think it's important to remember that sometimes we have, um, I always call them student-adjacent outcomes that also matter. So like teacher turnover, that's a student-adjacent outcome. We know that um, schools with higher levels of teacher turnover tend to be lower performing than schools with more stable um teacher bases, right? And so if we can improve teacher turnover, then that's adjacent. Eventually, we anticipate that that would improve student outcomes. So we not everything can be tied directly back to that student outcome. And, and what is the student outcome? Is it a test score? Mm. Maybe, maybe not. There's a lot of ways to interpret that too. Um, I kind of get a bad rap a lot of the times for for. Um, people assume that all evidence-based decision is about standardized testing and those test scores. And it's really not. To me, test scores are one piece of evidence. And as I stated earlier, we're taking in all the evidence that we can um, when we make our decision. And so um, the test score is not that end-all, be-all indicator that we're going to tie everything to. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes total sense to think about it from the student outcome lens, the student adjacent. I love that perspective. And it goes back to the purpose of this podcast, talking about school culture, teacher retention, the employee experience in general. So I don't know how much you've thought about that, but what are some things that school leaders could do evidence-based wise to think about school culture, to implement school culture? What what are you measuring? What are some of the tests that you're implementing? How, How do those worlds align? Mm, Yeah. So I think um, one type of data that we don't use very well in education is our qualitative data, Um, our interview data, our survey data, soliciting that feedback along the way. And so um, I think that anytime we're thinking about school culture and climate from an employee perspective, we're starting with those, um, you know, employee satisfaction surveys and workplace condition surveys. We're interviewing or talking to our teachers. And as we're interviewing, we're doing that in a rigorous way, too. We're taking accurate notes. Um, We're really 
synthesizing that information together. We're not just popping in, hey, are you happy today? And, okay. and, and moving on, right? We're doing that in a very studious way. And that's something that I sometimes have to teach leaders how to do because we don't really get a lot of training in qualitative data in our leadership prep programs. Um, but really thinking about how do we how do we know what our baseline is where and where our culture and climate problems are? And then culture and climate is heavily studied. Um, and it's not only studied in education, but it's studied in business, it's studied in healthcare. And so we can pull from that research literature too to really understand um, and, and find solutions to those problems that we have um, mm-hmm. within our employee culture and climate problems. So there's a lot of opportunity there, but we have to kind of expand our mind about what what the data we're using is, what the outcomes are, how we're measuring that. Yeah. And how how much of this is kind of testing? And I, I'm thinking specifically around the employee experience and school culture. Do, would you, so pretend like you did a qualitative um, analysis and you've, you've collected mm-hmm. feedback and maybe did some surveys and you've identified, you know, here, here's the challenge that we're facing. Here's maybe the root cause. So you've gone through those steps and you're trying to figure out how can we how can we move the needle now on the employee experience? Do you kind of subgroup your teachers and maybe half the staff gets this experience, half the staff gets that, that experience? Maybe I'm going to, you know, recognize these ten teachers more often, more frequently, and then see what mm-hmm. those results are. Do you think about experimenting that way with adults? Yeah, so what you're describing is participatory action research, where we are really applying a solution to our problem. Um, And sometimes it can be appropriate to kind of group out and do a sort of a control group and an intervention group. Those are the research terms there. um, And and compare those at the end. Not always appropriate, right? So maybe if I'm at the system level, maybe we do this in this school, but not in this school, and we we compare over time. Um, Within your building, um, subgrouping your teachers into those two groups might actually exacerbate your problem sure. um, because why does that teacher get to be in that group? And so you kind of have to feel out. That's why that local context can't ever be lost um, through this process. But there are other resources too. So all of our continuous improvement tools and systems can come into play. So plan, do, study, act, 30, 60, 90 day planning cycles. Um, those are really useful tools that we can apply as we're rolling out these new strategies to collect data along the way, to examine their impact and to kind of make those tweaks along the way. So it doesn't always have to be um, that those traditional research experimental paradigms, we can use this improvement science framework um, to, to implement and monitor along the way as well. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what, what does research um, suggest as far as maybe teacher autonomy and evidence-based decision-making are there any outcomes that you've experienced that are maybe research validated in terms of when people, uh, school leaders implement, you know, a, a system like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I'll go back again to participatory action research. Um, there is a huge body of literature that talks about how that research, uh, that, that process helps educators to learn how to use research, to apply that, and to feel really empowered um, within their system. And um, I'll follow my own research uh, says rule. I won't cite it all here for the podcast, but there is a link on my website um, where I have curated articles and citations about participatory action research to that end. Um, so your listeners can go read that for themselves and fact check me. Um, but it really does empower those educators to solve those problems, to get on board um, with evidence-based decision-making. It's one of those things that it's kind of like Pandora's box. Once we open it and we start to see the value of it, it just grows and grows and grows. Um, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. Right now I'm working um, with a group of 30 educators 
and um, they're going through one of my training programs right now. And one of them called me the other day and he said, I just want you to know that I was having dinner with my daughter, who's a a first year kindergarten teacher. Mm. And he said, she was really struggling with some disruption or disruptive behavior in her classroom. I can't remember. And he said, after dinner, we went to my office, we found the research and today she is piloting a new solution in her classroom. And like, to me, like, that's what this work is all about. Like taking that professional responsibility to say, Hey, other teacher, I see you're struggling. I have these skills. Let me help you. Let me teach you these skills. And she's going to apply that those skills. She's going to value and benefit from that for the rest of her career. And someday she will apply those skills to another teacher and help them solve a problem too. Mm-hmm. No, that's fantastic. I love that. I can't imagine disruptive behaviors in a kindergarten classroom, right? Thinking oh. back to my own experience, <laughs> never, ever happened. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty wild place, that kindergarten room. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> so pretend like you're talking to a, a building level principal right now, or maybe an HR mm-hmm. director, or even a superintendent. And mm-hmm. they say, Matthew, I'm, I'm, I'm considering this. Um, you know, it seems like the right thing to do, but I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Where should I begin to even think about implementing research-based decision-making? Yeah. So you begin with yourself. So we have to start and make sure that as a practitioner, I am ready to go and that I can support everybody else in that system. So as a leader, remember I said evidence-based decision-making is not the leader's role by themselves. It's a community effort, right? So we have to make sure that we're ready. So the three pillars are data analysis, research use, and continuous improvement systems. So I'm self-checking. How strong am I really with data? And be honest with yourself. I mean, if I pull this, you know, PhD level stats textbook off my shelf back here, are you going to be able to read and apply that? If not, that's a skill set that we need to develop before we move on and we start creating processes and demands and requests of others. Research interpretation. Do I really know how to read a research study Mm -hmm. and pull the right information out and interpret it and synthesize it into new information for my setting? If not, I got a skill build. I got to build that. Do I really know those improvement processes and systems? If I don't, I've got to build that. And once you get yourself upskilled where you need to be, then we start making evidence-based decisions in my circle. So I start modeling. I'm going to make this evidence-based decision. I have to choose a curriculum for my building. I'm making an evidence-based decision. I'm going to be real transparent about that. And then down the line, we can start expanding and expanding to where the expectation becomes, this is how we do business in this school. This is how we do business in this system. We are all using research to make those decisions. But it starts with yourself and an honest self-assessment of your current skills. And then we build skills, we model, we expand. Yeah, start small, right? Starting small within your, whatever that locus of control is that you have on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. And then start the, the ripple effects happen after that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, you're working on a new book with a clear direction on how to become an evidence-based informed practitioner. What else can you tell us about the book? Yeah. So hopefully I'm hoping the book will be out this summer, um, just in time for folks to read by the pool before we go back uh, and get started <laughs> again for the next school year. Um, so it's all about my evidence-empowered educator method, where we are really honing in on those three pillars data analysis, research use, and continuous improvement systems. Um, It's going to go deep dive into those three pillars to help you get those skills um, and be able to empower those skills in others. And then also really thinking about how do we lead through those pillars? How do we apply those pillars in a real way? So um, my hope is that this book will be um, 
both a solid handbook to get you started and also a reference tool that I can come back to later. I'm reading a study. I'm like, what does that mean? I'm going to go look in this reference book and and remind myself uh, about that strategy, that procedure, what have you. Um, So I'm real excited about it. Uh, Hopefully this summer, it'll be on everybody's desk. Yes, that's terrific. I love that. So I, I love to end conversations with uh, very similar questions from guest to guest. And it's always interesting hearing people's responses. So I'll ask you the same questions. Matthew, if you can go back and give yourself advice before you began your career in education, what would that advice be? Hmm. I think my advice would be calm down. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we... There's so many things. The school environment is so stimulating all the time. Mm. And everything feels like an emergency. But really, most of it's not an emergency. And so really taking time to prioritize the work, to understand what do I need to do next, step by step, creating systems and processes. Um, I wish I had learned to do that earlier. Um, I think that would have made me um, a more successful teacher, but also a happier, healthier teacher. Mm. Yeah. And remove the the blue uh, pencil sharpeners, right? Stop buying blue pencil sharpeners. <laughs> <laughs> no more pencils. No more pencils. <laughs> uh, what's one action or strategy you hope every school leader takes from this conversation to help them create a positive employee experience for their own people? Um, if I could pick just one, transparency in your decision-making. Mm. How can you bring people together? How can you be more transparent about the evidence that's informing your decision and Adopt that evidence says rule, get a bell, a buzzer, assign somebody every faculty meeting to be the evidence or research says police, and hold yourself and others accountable to that. That's great. That's great. What's a celebration you've recently experienced that you want to share? Um, I think my biggest celebration right now is I have been selected to give a TEDx talk um, in Gainesville, Florida, um, coming up in March, um, all about evidence-based decision-making in education. Um, so I'm really excited to bring this message uh, to a general population um, and engage non-teachers uh, in this work as well. This will be my first real opportunity to engage non-educators in evidence-based decision-making in education, and I just can't wait. That's great. Congratulations. It's exciting. You. And Matthew, how can people get a hold of you if they want to? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me um, is to check out my website at www.matthewbcourtney.com. Um, I'm also on social media at mbcourtneyedd um, on all the social medias. My handle's the same. Um, and I love to connect with people. Um, don't ever hesitate to reach out. Uh, I genuinely love being able to help our educators be successful, to help solve problems. And I'm not one of those consultants who nickel and dimes every minute. So shoot me your quick questions. I'll shoot you a quick answer. Let's start a conversation. That's fantastic. Appreciate that. Well, Matthew, thanks for joining the conversation today. It's been lovely. And I can't wait to read the book this summer. All right. Thanks for having me today. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day.